Let's open the Holy Scripture together now to the Gospel of Matthew. In the first place, Matthew chapter 28, and then 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll start in Matthew, page 1062 in the Pew Bible, 1062, Matthew 28. These readings will connect in slightly different ways with our text in the, in the book of Genesis, dealing with the mandate that God gives to mankind in our at creation, the mandate to rule the world, to multiply and fill the earth and rule the earth. So the Lord Jesus sheds some light or some additional light on that in Matthew 28. We'll read the verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, page 1260 in the Pew Bible. 1260, we'll read chapter 3 of this letter, where Paul addresses, among other things, the issue of work. He exhorts the Christians here concerning their daily labors, something that we run into in Genesis 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful." He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 
Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. In the Pew Bible, it's the second page of the Bible. Genesis 1, verses 20, or verse 28 will be our focus. Just to help us with the context, we'll begin reading at verse 26 through 31. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So verse 28 will be our focus, and after the preaching of the gospel, we will sing together Psalm 128, stanzas 1, 2, and 3, a psalm which echoes much of what we have here in the command to mankind in Genesis 1. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we dealt with what it means to be created in the image of God. We saw that as God's image in this world, and now being recreated in the image of God through the power of Christ's Spirit, we are called to reflect God to the world, to be like a mirror so that when people look at us, when they observe us living out our daily life, they, they see something of God's character. They see something of God's righteousness and holiness, that they are then drawn toward that as, a, as to a light and maybe ask questions and, and otherwise are drawn to God Himself. And still there's more to being the image of God. It also involves, we saw, representing God in creation as His vicegerent. That is, as God's appointed king or, or queen over creation. 
The Lord speaks of that task in the same breath as the image. Verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, man, the image of God, is made ruler over all living creatures, indeed over creation itself. We have to exercise dominion over the earth. But what does that actually mean? I mean, none of us are born kings or queens. None of us have uh, blue blood running through our veins. We're simple people. We're just trying to make a living each day. So, how do we connect the dots? How are we as landscapers or technicians or mechanics, mothers, fathers, students, teachers, salespeople, administrators, and more, how are we really to exercise dominion as kings and queens over this earth? How do we do that? Well, we hope to see the answer to that together as I proclaim to you this word of the Lord, God created you to exercise dominion over the earth. We do this through our work, and we do this also through our marriages. Our text has a number of commands, verse 28, for humanity, and the Lord uses some very specific and very telling verbs. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all creatures. Dominion, to, to exercise dominion, we don't use that phrasing too often. It just means that we are to have authority over, we are to rule over, in this case, creation and all creatures of the earth, whether in the sky or on the soil or in the waters. And, says God, we are to subdue the earth. So there's two commands we want to focus on for a few minutes. The earth needs to be subdued and the animals need to be ruled over. The Creator is telling man that action is required on His part, on our part. We have a responsibility in creation and over all of creation. In other words, brothers and sisters, the Lord God put Adam and Eve to work. Human beings are called to labor on the earth. A lot of folks might be surprised by that. Many, certainly in our culture, see work and labor as a curse. Only, they only wish they could live in a paradise like the Garden of Eden. A lot of people have this idea that the Garden of Eden was a, was a, was a paradise for man in the sense of it was a place to enjoy leisure. It was a place of tranquility and serenity, Adam and Eve just hanging around, having a good time. They had it made in the shade. Everything that they needed was at their disposal. If only I could live in a paradise like the Garden of Eden. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it, Adam and Eve, they were busy working in the Garden of Eden. 
Listen to Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work the garden and to keep the garden. That's paradise. Paradise is, is not like a vacation trip to Mexico. It's not lounging by the poolside in Florida. It's, it's not spending your days out on the links trying to lower your golf score. Paradise, the Garden of Eden itself, needed care. It needed tending. Way before sin ever entered the world, man was created to work on the earth. Actually, it's even stronger than that. Our text says that work itself, labor itself, is a blessing from God. You ever thought about that, that, that your daily labor is actually a blessing from God? Look at verse 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, in the context of that blessing, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the earth. So, just like we know and we say it all the time, rightly so, that receiving children is a blessing from the Lord because of Genesis 1.28, well, receiving the ability to work is a blessing from the Lord just as well. It's true, of course, that work in a world that's now filled with sin will have its challenges and many difficulties but work is still a gift from God that He blesses man with and He calls man to undertake. That's behind what Paul writes about in 2 Thessalonians 3, which we read. He reminds the believers there how the apostles, when they had come to teach the gospel to those people in the first place, they provided for themselves by laboring with their hands while they were busy teaching. Paul says elsewhere that he was a tent maker. That's how he made a living. And he goes on in that chapter to say that they did that so that the Thessalonians would have an example to imitate so that all the Christians there themselves might work quietly and earn their own living, he says. We were teaching you to work and earn your own living. Paul is quite categorical about that task, our task as Christians. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. They had a problem with some folks in Thessalonica who didn't want to work because they thought Jesus was going to come back any day, so they said, why work? Paul says, you get to work because that's your calling, and if you don't work, don't eat. Nobody should feed you. It's true that we, we humans have ruined the harmony of the original creation order by our sin, but our Lord Jesus Christ is restoring what we broke, and He continues the very same mandate that God gave at creation, go to work subduing the earth and ruling the animals. Now, that word subdue is quite a striking verb for the Lord to use here in Genesis 1. For every other time you find that verb in Scripture, it has a negative connotation. It has to do very often with one person putting another person under their thumb, so to speak, usually by force. For example, in Scripture, nations are subdued, enemies are subdued, slaves are said to be subdued. 
It means to bring something or someone under your control so that they do your will, and it's usually against their own will. Well, in a creation here in Genesis 1 that has no sin yet in it, that negative connotation cannot be there, but still there is something there. There's, there's some resistance. The Word tells us that the earth did not automatically bring forth its riches, its resources, and just drop them at Adam's feet. It wasn't that Adam and Eve just stood there and the earth just coughed up all that it had to produce. No. Adam and Eve, they had to work. They had to go and get them, the resources of the earth. The earth had no sin in it, but it was a world, a globe, as yet undeveloped. It was untapped, a world with, a, with incredible, even endless potential for growth and expansion and advancement, but man had the responsibility to dig in, so to speak, literally and figuratively. Mankind and his labor are, are the key which unlocks the potential of creation. We can see that in Eden itself, in the garden. In the garden, the Lord started Adam and Eve off in that grove of fruit trees from which they could pick and eat. So He gave them a stock supply of food to get going. But He expected them to work and, and to also produce for themselves their daily food. The Lord also gave man every seed-bearing plant. We read that at the end of chapter 1 for food. So plants, whether it's vegetables or fruit, having seed in them, they needed to be, those seeds needed to be planted in order to grow another crop, to receive a crop, whether it's of wheat or, or rice or potatoes or whatever else. And to do that, man would have to labor. Man would have to cultivate or till the soil of the Garden of Eden. Just like farmers till their fields every spring, and you rototill your garden, probably fall and spring, so our first parents, they had to learn how to prepare the ground, how to plant seeds, and nurture those seeds along. So if we come back to our question, what does it mean to have or exercise dominion? Over the earth, what does it mean to subdue the earth? It means this, through our daily work, we bring creation under our control. And we do that not to be a domineering taskmaster, not to mistreat creation or the earth for our own pleasure, but to bring out of the earth the potential that God put in it and to do that for God's glory. In fact, we Christians should be more concerned than the so-called environmentalists to care for this earth because unlike them, we know that the earth is God's handiwork. We know that we are made in God's image. We are charged with keeping and caring for His creation. And, and if we're made in God's image, just think, would God ever abuse His own handiwork? Would He ever just use up the earth and throw it away? Of course not. He would be caring for His creation, and that's what we must do. Our task is to work with the, the raw materials, 
that God has provided in creation to develop them, each in accordance with their nature, and to make them do what they are able to do and make them be what they can be with development. As the Lord gave every part of creation its potential, by bringing that potential and possibility to light and making it happen, we not only show the, the wonder of creation, but we also show the wisdom and the power and the majesty of the Creator. Whatever beauty that you and I can develop, whatever technology we can produce, whatever good and useful purpose we can make the earth and its resources serve, all of it is only possible because God created the earth and everything on it with all that potential, and God created us humans with the ability to tap the resources. So it all redounds to the praise of the Creator. And this applies to the animals as well. We are called to rule over them so that they too can fulfill their potential for advancement and development as God created them to have. Let's just put ourselves back into the Garden of Eden for a moment in Adam and Eve's shoes, as it were, or sandals or whatever they might have had eventually. There they were among the, the creatures in the Garden of Eden, and in the Garden itself, God gave them the command to work the soil. How are they going to do that? If you were them, what would you be thinking? Well, perhaps they began down on their knees working the soil with their hands, but it's not hard to imagine that they soon would reach for a branch from a tree to form some kind of a basic hoe or shovel by which to more easily work the soil. That would be a development. We know for a fact that all sorts of animals were roaming through Eden, so no doubt also horses and, and bulls, for example. And Adam, it couldn't have been too far from Adam's mind to harness the strength of these animals in order to help him till the earth. That way he could till more of the soil faster. He could produce a bigger crop and feed more people as he and, and Eve would uh, receive children from the Lord. And if he wanted to harness the power of a, an ox or a, a horse, he would need to fashion ropes and so on and so forth. Even if the animals were perfectly cooperative, he would need some way to hook up the uh, horse or the ox to whatever um, hoe or rake or whatever he might have fashioned. So you can see that the, the development of the earth's potential, the development of technology was inherent, and that was part of man's calling at the beginning. Ruling over the animals leads to the invention of certain technologies which themselves aid in the development of creation's potential. So what this means, brothers and sisters, is that every day when you will go to work, whatever your task is, whether it's manufacturing doors and windows or framing houses or doing administrative tasks, managing financial matters, serving as a nurse or a PSW or standing on an assembly line, whether you're in a primary industry or secondary or tertiary, whether you buy and sell or build and maintain, you name it, whatever your occupation is, you in that occupation are exercising dominion 
over the earth. You've got a part in this creation mandate. Each of us a small part, like a very thin slice of the pie, so to speak. But nevertheless, it is a slice of the pie. It is part of the creation mandate. Your daily work in some way, shape, or form contributes to the development, to the well-being, to the flourishing of human society for the glory of the Maker. You know, a lot of people in this world have totally lost that concept. Maybe we don't always think of it as much as we should. Most people in their daily jobs, they give zero thought to God, much less to glorifying God. They simply are working for their own needs or their own satisfaction or pleasure or some other purpose. For some folks, work is their life. It's so important to them. It's the thing for which they live. It can actually even be their God. For others, it's the opposite. Work is a drudgery, a necessary evil. Maybe you've heard people say, or maybe you've said it or thought it yourself, I'm just working here for the paycheck. I'm, I'm just here for the money. Everybody's working for the weekend, it seems, in our culture. And either way, whether it's a god or a drudgery, work for many has lost its meaning, it's lost its value, it's lost its purpose. But brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ has changed all of that for you and for me and for all who belong to Him. When He came to redeem us, He came to redeem our souls, but much more than our souls, also our bodies and, in fact, all of creation itself. Romans 8, creation is groaning as in travail until the day the Lord Jesus comes back and then He's going to redeem and renew creation. By His death, the Lord Jesus removed the curse from over us. He restored the creation mandate, our cultural mandate to work as kings and queens in God's creation. So as Christians, our labor is not useless toil any longer. It has value and meaning in Christ. Paul actually says as much in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your work in Christ is not in vain. That's all the labor we do in the service of the Lord. He makes it count. He does something of eternal value with it. So you're not just working for a paycheck or for some kind of legacy. You aren't living for the weekend, but every day your labor, it brings to light a little piece of creation's potential, and through that, the world sees a glimpse of God's glory. Look at that. Look what they made. Look what they did. Look how they're serving. Look how they're providing. Look how, look how things are flourishing in that area where you're working. People see a glimpse of the Creator in that. A glimpse which is also seen in our families, our marriages. For the Lord connects very strongly our dominion over the earth with the procreation of children. Verse 28, And God blessed them, 
And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So part and parcel of exercising dominion over the earth is to populate the earth with many people. Fill the earth, says the Lord. And that's very understandable uh, from a practical point of view when you consider Adam and Eve's task. For how were they, just two individuals, how were they going to manage this, this, this enormous task of subduing the earth, this, this huge, wide world in which they were created? In order to, to actually rein in creation and tap its resources and develop them, Adam and Eve, they needed more manpower, simple as that. And in God's wisdom, that manpower would come from a certain place, a certain source, namely through the birth of children in the context of marriage. So the growth of our families is every bit as much a part of our cultural mandate to subdue the earth as our daily labor is. Now, before we go further, I'd like you to notice and, and think about God's design in this. The way He deals with man stands in direct contrast to the way He dealt with the creatures, the animals, earlier in the other five days of creation. If you look back, for example, to verse 20, we read this, "'Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens.'" Verse 24 is something similar. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. So, all those creatures, the, the water creatures, the, the birds and the land animals, they were created in a multitude, you understand. They were created in a variety of species. But when God made man, He only made a single individual, Adam. Later that day, He made a second individual, Eve. But there was no multiple species of mankind. There were no multitudes of people made at the same time, just two by the end of day six. The Lord God could certainly have done it differently. He could have made hundreds of thousands of people at first. He could have given Adam and Eve multiple helpers immediately if He had wished. But by the end of day six, there was just one male and one female. And God brought them together as husband and wife and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There would be one human family, one human race but it starts from two. Isn't that remarkable? Marriage and the raising of children is God's specially chosen method to populate the earth all as part of subduing the earth and exercising dominion over the earth. There's a a lot of truth in the saying that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. Because those hands that rock the cradle, 
those hands are raising up another generation of kings and queens to themselves rule over God's creation for His glory. That means mothers, I'm going to speak to the mothers for a moment. Mothers, you have an incredibly important task. Your task is, words actually fail me to speak about its importance. Do not let the feminist movement convince you that motherhood is second to a career. That's what the world wants us to believe, and it's a, it's a distant second as far as the feminists are concerned. But Scripture says, God says, motherhood is itself a career. It is a calling from God which He fills with great honor. It is second to no career. Marriage is truly the building block of society, as it's often been called. It's part of God's holy design and plan, and any effort to make marriage into something other than the union of one man and one woman is from the devil. We should be very clear about that, beloved. We're living in a time where marriage is being redefined by human beings all the time in all kinds of corrupt ways, whether it's the homosexual perversion of same-sex marriage, so-called, or the Mormon corruption of polygamy, whether it's common-law living or the thinking that people can get divorced for basically any reason at all, all of these popularized over the last decades, they aim to undermine the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. They undermine that by destroying God's creation pattern and preventing man from going forward with his dominion over the earth as God's image. You can see the devil's strategy. If you stop marriage, if you twist marriage the way God created it, if you corrupt it or otherwise break it down, you break down the kingdom of God. That's what the devil's doing. But we who are married in the Lord, we labor to promote the redeeming work of Christ right in our marriages, in our families, in our homes. It's really important that we connect mentally marriage to the task of having dominion over the earth. God will reveal more particulars in Genesis 2. We hope to come to that in time, but already here in Genesis 1, 28, the Lord speaks in a summary way about marriage, about the coming together of male and female in a relationship that would produce offspring, children who would grow up and take their place beside mom and dad to exercise dominion over the earth. And let's also observe from our text that this is God's command. It's a command. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Having children for a married couple is not optional. It's commanded by our Creator. Now, I know there are legitimate exceptions to this rule. Can't talk about them all, just mention a couple. In our fallen world, God sometimes gives to certain individuals the gift of being content in singleness. 
so that they neither marry nor have children. They remain single. The Lord Jesus in His earthly ministry spoke about such persons. The Apostle Paul is one example of such a person. Such a person has different opportunities and responsibilities to exercise dominion over the earth as a single person, spreading the kingdom of God. That person has the ability to concentrate more than if, on that particular task than if he was married or she was married. And such a person, beloved, let me also say this, a single person who is content in their singleness, right? Such a person should be loved and embraced and fully included in the congregation, same as any married person. If a single person has the gift of being content, we should not feel sorry for them that they don't have a spouse. We should recognize their gift. 1 Corinthians 7. And we should embrace them. You can also think, here's another exception to the, the rule of having children, You can also think of married people who are physically unable to have children or who are physically not able to have more children than they presently have, though they would desire that. As a result of the spread of sin through all creation, this does happen, infertility. And it's often a great source of sorrow. We have examples in the Bible. Think of Rachel or Hannah or Elizabeth. In each case, very sorrowful. But their, their very sorrow of heart and their isolation from the rest of, of Israel proves that they are exceptions to the general rule God established at creation that married people, and particularly married believers, they ought to be fruitful and they ought to multiply and as, and as much as the Lord enables them to do so. That leads to this conclusion, brothers and sisters, and I know it goes totally against our culture, but that's the way of the Scriptures. If you don't want children, okay, if you think, I don't want to have kids, then don't get married because it's a command of the Lord. And if if you've got no intention of obeying God's command to multiply, then remain single and work in His kingdom that way. And why should we want children? Let's think about that for a moment. Children should not be desired in the first place because they're cute, though they are, and we can enjoy that. Children are not to be desired to carry on the family name. They're not to be desired to be a source of pride for us, but to be a source of glory to God. That's got to be our thinking. Again, a lot of people today want kids in order to have a nice family for themselves, one boy, one girl, maybe one for mom, one for dad kind of thing. But the children, beloved, they are not for mom and dad. They are for the Lord. They are not even, these children, they're not even from mom and dad, ultimately. They are from the Lord. The Lord puts them into our lives through the the use of, of marital union, through the practice of marital sexual union. But they're from the Lord. And if they're from the Lord, then they are for the Lord. And we parents, we are caretakers of children who belong to the Lord. The Lord Jesus has renewed also this part of our creation mandate that gives purpose and meaning to childbearing. 
It's not just to keep the human race going, but it's to expand the kingdom of God and raise up new kingdom citizens who also, like us, are created in the image of the Maker. I want to just pause over that point for a moment about Jesus renewing this mandate because some people think that Jesus has actually changed the mandate. And I'm referring to the cultural mandate of Genesis 1.28 to go uh, to bear children, to be fruitful and multiply. Some people think that Jesus has substituted what's called the Great Commission of Matthew 28, which we read, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. There's an idea creeping in some circles that this commandment supersedes the creation mandate to be fruitful. Some are saying it's okay for Christians to decide right off the hop, we're not going to have children so that we can focus on mission. They pit the one commandment against the other. But brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus never does that. Not in Matthew 28, not anywhere else in Scripture does Jesus or the Holy Spirit indicate that God's original commands at creation have been canceled or altered, much less substituted. The human race still has the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, stewarding creation as vicegerents. We'll sing about it in Psalm 128. And we Christians who know this, we should be at the forefront of getting married and having children and developing the earth's potential, creating culture and caring for God's green earth because we do it for the glory of the King. We, of all people, should understand that. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 does not replace the calling of creation, but it expands it. Planet Earth, since creation, has now many nations that do not know God or the King Jesus and who are not living for God's glory. There's a whole earth full of, of people that are created in the image of God, but they don't know that they're created in the image of God. They don't know about the Creator. The Great Commission calls us as church to reach out to them with the gospel so that these people too will hear of the only Savior Jesus and by grace come to faith so that they too can start living as God's image and bear fruit for His honor. The Great Commission teaches, or Jesus says there, that we are to teach all those who are converted, we are to teach them all that Jesus has commanded us. Does that not include the original creation mandate? We've already seen that Jesus is Creator together with the Father and the Son. He was there in the beginning. The Word, remember, Creator. So the commands of Genesis 1 and 2 are equally Jesus' commands. You can't say, well, that was Old Testament. Jesus wasn't there. So we're only talking New Testament commands in the Great Commission. No, Jesus was there. Second person of the Trinity was there. As new believers, they need to be instructed to look to marriage, to look to their daily work, 
to raise children, all as part of exercising dominion over the earth for God's glory, just like all the other Christians. This is the task of God's people. It's also why Paul gives instructions in his letters about marriage and about work and about children. Why would he instruct them about these things if they were canceled? Isn't it true that God's been gathering a church for Himself from the children of believers, that is, from covenant children all through the ages? Even as since Pentecost, God has gathered in new adult believers through evangelism, they and their households, think of the book of Acts, evangelism and outreach and being missional in no way cancels out the calling to have babies and raising a family and otherwise laboring in society. Think of just the task of motherhood. Doesn't every mother have in her care full-time disciples? I mean, those kids of yours are disciples. You've got a full-time task of training those young disciples in the way of the Lord. That's part of the Great Commission as much as it's part of the creation mandate. As mom and dad, your number one missional task, disciple-making task, is right there in those olive shoots around your table. If you don't disciple your kids, who's going to do it? And that task of, of, of raising up the children to know and fear the Lord, that's not just a task for the moms. It's equally a task of the fathers. Our text says, God said to them, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve together have that task. It's true that frequently the mother will be the primary caregiver in the home while the father will be working elsewhere to develop creation's potential. But don't forget, fathers, brothers, don't forget the children that God has put in your care your wife as mother will teach, but so must you as father. We see that many times in Scripture. Proverbs 4, hear, O sons, a father's instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight. Are your sons hearing you as dad instruct them? Are your daughters hearing that? You know, in our Reformed communities, we have a high regard for work on balance, and that's in itself good and appropriate. But do we have just as high a regard for fathers teaching their children? Or are we by default leaving it to mom, leaving it to the schools, leaving it to catechism class? Brothers, don't do that. As dads, your calling is to join alongside your wife in training up the children. You can work 12 hours a day, six days a week to subdue the earth, but are you putting the same kind of thought and energy into raising your kids? The same God who calls you to work calls you to be a dad. Don't let work cancel that out. Don't let your hobbies or leisure time cancel that out. You've got to hold these things in biblical balance. As Christians, as people who are in Christ, this life is not a rat race where all we do is work, 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 work. No, this life is dignified. It's purposeful. 
You don't just work 40 years and then drop dead from exhaustion and that's all there is. God puts you here for a higher purpose, to live in sweet fellowship with Him, to enjoy your daily labor as part of walking with your God and doing that to His honor. Remember, we are redeemed from slavery. Don't let work enslave you. Work hard, but work with Christian vision. Conduct yourself with honor to show something to the world of, of who your God is. And then teach your kids all about it. And let your neighbor in on the blessings you found by grace. Pass on. You're a king. You're a queen. Pass on the crown that God has given you to the next generation as well as to folks whom you know in the community. Pass it on and watch Watch God's kingdom grow right into eternity. Amen.